Welcome to our study in the epistle of Paul to the Philippians. We're going to be starting in verse 18 of chapter 2. And glad you're here with us. Let's begin with prayer. O Lord, again we thank you for your word and for its instruction to us. We know that it is instruction that comes directly from you through the agency of those that you chose to bear along, to carry along as they wrote, so that their words would be precisely what you wanted. And we thank you, Lord, for preserving your word for us. So we pray, Lord, that as we study tonight, as we look at these verses, that you would instill within us not only uh, the desire, but also the ability, as you have promised, to follow your word and to live in accordance with it. And, Father, I pray that it would be an encouragement as we study together, so that in each of our respective places, we would, in walking in the footsteps of Messiah, be a light in this world. Help us, Father, as we continue forward in our daily lives to be witnesses for you, that others might seek you as you draw them unto yourself. Lord, we know that in the miraculous and beyond our ability to understand, you use our giving of the gospel and our living it out as the means by which you draw others unto yourself and give them the ability to believe in you and to be one with us in Yeshua. So we bless you for that. We thank you for your word. In Yeshua's name, amen. We're going to read uh, Philippians 2 and in its entirety, as we always do. And we're reading out of the uh, English Standard Version this evening. Okay? So if there is any encouragement in Messiah, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Messiah Yeshua, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Yeshua every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Messiah I may be proud that I did not run in vain, or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad 
and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Yeshua Messiah. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has dis been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Messiah, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Well, once again, this is just a wonderful chapter. We're uh, taking just a couple verses again, verses 18 and 19. And I think um, there is such a message in these verses that uh, we need to hear, especially in our times, maybe in all times. But it seems like we're in a time in our world, as well as in our country, where there is a bit of an upheaval, and some would say a great upheaval, in terms of how the government is uh, acting and working and how uh, new regulations are being implemented and so forth because of this uh, COVID pandemic that has been announced. But I do see signs about, uh, at least in our city, uh, for uh, advertising that there are those counselors who work with depression, and if you're depressed, please come to them. I haven't seen these signs nearly as much as I have in the recent, in this past year, I think there are many who are struggling with depression and struggling with kind of what do we do now and how do we go forward? And we're hearing a lot of news that seems to be uh, increasing the upheaval of what is going on in our world as well as into our country here in the United States. So I think verse 18 is very apropos for us to be studying tonight. He says, You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Having stated in the previous verse that he is rejoicing in spite of his current circumstances, Paul now urges the believers at Philippi to likewise rejoice with him. The New American Standard Bible adds the words, I urge you, to emphasize the nature of the imperative. An imperative, of course, is a command, okay? So the uh, imperative is marked out in the Greek in a, in a different uh, way that the word is spelled, and uh, it's an imperative, it's a command. He doesn't say, rejoice if you want to. No, he says, rejoice and remember. Paul is writing these words being carried along by the Ruach HaKodesh, by the Holy Spirit, as Peter teaches us, that the holy men of old were born along by the Spirit of God. And the same thing was true with the apostles and those who wrote the apostolic scriptures. 
So it's an imperative, it's a command to rejoice in the Lord, even as Paul is rejoicing. He says, I rejoice. Now think about it for a minute. Here he is in prison for something he never did, essentially for the cause of, of Messiah. And he's in such a way that he has to depend upon all others for his food, for anything he needs. It's not a happy place to be in prison anywhere, but it was clearly not happy in the ancient world. It was the worst of conditions, but he says that he's rejoicing and he wants us to rejoice as he does. This emphasizes the sober yet wonderful promise of God to those who are his that even in times of suffering he is in control and will cause all things to work together for the good of those who are called to love him, who are called and redeemed according to his purposes, as we read in Romans 8.28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We take that as a bedrock, as a foundation, upon which we can rejoice even in the midst of struggles and trials. For even in the most dire of circumstances, all who are truly His by faith in Yeshua are enabled by the power of the Ruach to have inner peace and even to rejoice regardless of what they may face in the ups and downs of life. Now Paul has already expressed this in the earlier verses of chapter 1. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Messiah will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Messiah, and to die is even better, or is gain. What does it mean, to live is Messiah? Well, we've studied this in the past, but let's remind ourselves. It means to live for His honor, for his glory, that he would be known. Life in Messiah is pointed towards him with Yeshua always in mind in all aspects of our life. But you say, but to live for Messiah, how does Paul say, and to die is gain? It's even better. Why? Because those who are truly his, it's not that we look for death. It's not that we hope to die. It's that we don't fear death because when death comes, we who are His will be with Him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So this is what uh, I call a call of a homer. Now call means light in, in the Hebrew and homer means heavy. Okay, so a call of a homer a light and heavy example. It's where you have something that's very difficult and something that's wonderful and you put them together. Uh, he, Paul states that whether God continues to give him life, that would be the good thing, that would be the light, easy thing to accept, or he succumbs to death, which is the heavy thing, he will still be able to rejoice for to live for the glory of Messiah in this life is that which gives the greatest purpose in life. And to die is to leave this fallen world and to enter into the very presence of Messiah himself, and to be forever with the Lord. Sometimes I think we are, well, I, I'm convinced, we're unable to grasp 
this idea of forever being with the Lord in its fullness. Uh, we should never extol death in this world. Death is the uh, result of sin. Sin entered into the world and death through sin, Paul tells us in Romans 5. And yet we should never fear death. And we have to keep reminding ourselves that God is in control, that God is the one who is numbering our days. God has given us the full measure that he intends us to have. And when we, are, when we succumb to death in this world, we are ever with the Lord, forever. And so it's not that we should extol death or, oh, I hope that I die today. No, not at all. We're to live as, in all ways for his glory. But we do not fear death. For to die is to be with the Lord. That's what Paul says. He says, even when he dies, it's okay. It's, it's even better. Because the very goal of our life is to be with the Lord. Surely all who are believers in Yeshua ought to value life and to do all to maintain and strengthen it. So when Paul states that to die is gain, he is in no way suggesting that death is to be sought after. Of course not. On the contrary, we are to do all in our power to maintain life and to support it and do so as that which honors God. So when we when we care for others and help them maintain their life, when we work hard against abortion and the, and the, the, the senseless and godless taking of life, we're doing what is right when we, when we stand against that and when we try to help any that we know and are able to help to maintain life. So we should never get the idea that when Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that somehow he's extolling death. No, he's saying that for the believer, there should be no fear of it. But when Paul states that to die is gain, he clearly means that the child of God need not fear death. For when a believer in Yeshua dies, their very soul abides with Yeshua. Thus, rather than death being a victory for the enemy over our souls, death is God's ordained gateway into his very presence. And he says, rejoice in the same way. The phrase translated in the same way actually comes first in the sentence in the Greek. In the same way, rejoice with me and functions adverbally, that is, expressing that Paul desired his readers and therefore us to rejoice in the same manner in which he was able to rejoice even though he's incarcerated and possibly facing execution in the near future. I mean, try to put yourself in the sandals of Paul. Here he is in a terrible prison. The prisons in the ancient world, in the ancient Roman world, were terrible. They were filled with all kinds of filth. They weren't treated correctly. They weren't given anything they needed. There was no food. There was no sanitation. It was the worst. And yet, he says, rejoice with me in the same way that I rejoice. How is it possible that someone like Paul could rejoice even in that terrible situation in which he resided? Surely the believers in Philippi to whom Paul is writing were not currently facing the same level of persecution that Paul was experiencing. 
Nevertheless, Paul admonishes them and us to face whatever troubles they encounter with a desire to rejoice in the fact that God is in control and will always enable His children to find deep and settled joy in Him regardless of the circumstances they face. But we can only find what I'm calling deep and settled joy in Him when we exercise and continue to grow in our faith. Do we truly believe that He has all things in His control? Do we honestly believe that He causes everything to work for good, even those things that are so difficult for us and so hard to endure? What is that goal? It is to become more and more like Yeshua. It is to become all that God intends us to be. It is to put away the deeds of the flesh and to walk in honest submission to the Spirit. Are we able to do that? By His grace we are. It isn't that we become perfect or sinless in this life. No. But when we sin, we confess our sins and He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what the Scriptures teach us. And when we have the habit of confessing our sin, not only to God but to those we may have sinned against, it helps us hate the sin even more and protects us from becoming swayed into it again. We should also note that Paul's use of the word rejoice throughout this epistle is always in a verbal sense. Now, you understand the, the difference between a verb and a noun. A noun is a person, place, or thing, and a verb is an action. It's a doing of some sort. So this emphasizes that joy and rejoicing is something a person does, not simply how one feels, as some of the English translations seem to imply by translating the verb as be glad. Well, that's an inward thing. Okay? You can be glad internally and nobody might ever know it. Now, usually when we're glad, we express it. But rejoicing is an action that we take that is inevitably visible and others can tell that we're rejoicing. Thus, in our epistle, Paul commands those who are believers in Yeshua to rejoice in the Lord, chapter 3, verse 1, and even to rejoice in the Lord always. Chapter 4, verse 4. This emphasis reminds one of the many times in the Psalms when the child of God is commanded to rejoice in God's goodness, power, and promises. For example, and I've listed just a few, if I remember correctly, when I looked it up this, uh, this morning, uh, there were 39 times where there is the imperative to rejoice in the Lord or to rejoice in one's life. The psalmist writes in Psalm 31, 7, I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul. Now let's remind ourselves, what is the loving kindness, the chesed in the Hebrew of God? It is his absolute faithfulness to do all that he promised to do in terms of bringing us into relationship or covenant with himself. When things appear as though they're falling away, when things appear to be breaking up, we can count on this. God's faithfulness 
to those who are his is everlasting and nothing can undo his loving kindness. What he has said, he will always do. So even when Yeshua said, I am with you always, I will never leave you or forsake you. What does that mean? It means we are his and he is ours in terms of a covenant relationship that is as secure as God himself. We have Psalm 32.11 Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Do you see how in the Psalms rejoicing is something that everybody else sees? It's not something you can keep to yourself. And in Psalm 35.9 And my soul shall rejoice in the Lord, it shall exult in his salvation. Now here the psalmist is speaking to his himself. He says, I command my soul to rejoice in the Lord. It will happen. I will exult in his salvation. There's something to learn about that. Is that we must resolve in ourselves to rejoice in the Lord. To rejoice in all the good things that he has given us. And ultimately, to rejoice in the salvation he has given to us and brought us to himself a salvation that is ours forever. Just to contemplate that one day we will see him face to face ought to be a constant uh, cause for us to rejoice. Even when things are sorrowful, there's a part of us that can rejoice. And we read in Psalm 70, verse 4, and I've just chosen these four, let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, Let God be magnified. So what is our rejoicing made up of? It's rejoicing in who God is. It's affirming and proclaiming His greatness. And that He is ours and we are His. We can also note the final stanza of Habakkuk's a song, the third chapter, his whole third chapter is that song, that great song. Remember, Habakkuk is a book where the prophet is in great distress. Why? Because Israel is acting contrary to God, and God has already declared that he's going to punish Israel by allowing her enemies to overtake her. But this is what Habakkuk writes. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. This is a pattern, this is a model that we could take, and you could put whatever in there that you want. You know, maybe the fig tree is, is not something that we're familiar with, or fruit on the vine. Maybe it's not the olive that we're looking for, or the flock out in the pasture. Uh, what is it? Whatever it is in our lives that is coming at us and causing us to not be able to rejoice, to be under the cloak of, of darkness, 
well, we can put whatever it is. Even though this happens, even though this doesn't happen, even though this has happened, yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I will exult in the Lord. And that's what our text is telling us here. Because Paul is that example to us as he was born along by the Spirit of God to write these words. As Fee notes, that is, rejoicing in the Lord is part and parcel of Christian life and is quite unrelated to the present lay of the land. This is not sour grapes, nor making the best of a bad situation, nor delight in feeling bad. This has to do with true faith, and thus perspective, based as it is on the unshakable foundation of the work of Christ, both past and future. And I would add, present. Why? Because Yeshua promised that he would always be praying for us. He would always be interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. So as we rely upon the Lord, being guided and urged by his Ruach, and applying the truths of the Scriptures, which are the very foundation of our faith, we are enabled both to recognize that our greatest purpose in life is to give God the glory he deserves, and that even the strength to do so has been given to us by him. If we are able to rejoice in Him, on what basis do we have that power, that desire, that ability? Because He has given that to us. This does not mean we never sorrow. It is proper, the Scriptures teach us, that we should weep with those who weep. We should mourn with those who mourn. In this fallen world, there's plenty that can bring us to mourning and to weeping and and sorrow. But this should not diminish our ability to rejoice. I know that it sounds like the two are opposite. You can't do the two at the same time. In one sense, that's true. But even in our deepest woe, we can stop and say, But Lord, I know that you have all things worked out for our good and your glory. And therefore, I can rejoice even in the midst of sorrow. So, it doesn't mean that we never sorrow, but it means that even in times of sorrow, we know and confirm that God does all things well, and that in the end, He will be glorified as, uh, as we love Him, as according to His love and mercy and strength is lived out by His chosen ones, even in the midst of suffering. He goes on to say, And share your joy with me. Greek actually has rejoice with me, where the verb carries the sense of to experience joy in conjunction with someone else, to rejoice together with someone. This is the same word that Paul used in uh, verse 17 as he intends to share with the Philippian community the inner joy he has in the Lord, regardless of what the immediate future may hold for him. So, what does this tell us? What is Paul emphasizing here? Well, the NESB translation of this phrase, uh, in my opinion, makes it sound as though Paul desires to share in their joy and share your joy with me. But the context would clearly suggest that Paul wants the Philippian community to rejoice with him in the same way or as he rejoices in God's sovereign care and plan for his life. He wants them 
to know that God has given him the strength to rejoice, even in his current situation, and as such, that they should not fret or worry about what lay ahead for him. So, he says, share your joy with me. It's more, if we could say, rejoice with me. You rejoice, and I rejoice, and we rejoice together. Here we see yet another, I think, very important aspect of Paul's teaching regarding rejoicing in the Lord, something which ought to characterize the lives of all believers. In this phrase, he emphasizes that our rejoicing in the Lord ought inevitably to be shared with other believers. We don't rejoice just in our closet. (laughs) Rejoicing, being exuberant and happy with what God has done, by its very nature, requires us to share that with others. So we're to share it with other believers, and especially with in one's community of faith. As we give testimony of how the Lord has enabled us to rejoice, even in difficult situations, by this we encourage one another to exercise our faith and to affirm the goodness of God and the strength He promises to give us, regardless of what we may experience in this world. So, once again, this is another time when the Scriptures teach us that being together within community is absolutely important. I think more and more in our very uh, um, academic uh, and very scientific world (laughs) uh, and with all of the uh, ability that we have to talk with each other over the internet and to exchange ideas over our phones and so forth and so on with all of that, I think that there's a, a greater sense of, uh, of no longer the need to be together. Now, I know, even as we have many of you online right now, uh, I know that there's m- many times when people, believers in the Lord, are living in places where they have no clear, uh, vibrant community of faith within driving distance of them or even close or they have whatever churches are there are not teaching the scriptures okay but that means doing all that we can to find those within our local community that we could fellowship with even if it's just family to family but there needs to be this this face to face this one to one or one-to-many kind of an an approach where we help each other rejoice together. It's a command of of the Scriptures. We are to rejoice in the Lord always. And we're to live in in that sense of rejoicing in His greatness. So I just think that it's very important if, if you are part of a community that you consider the priority that this must take in your life, that when you meet together, you do all that you can to be there. Thus Paul concludes this section of the epistle, which is actually chapters 1, verse 27 through 2.16, in which he exhorts the Philippian believers to live out their faith before a watching world and thereby be a strong testimony of the grace of God in redeeming his own through the redemptive work of Yeshua and the renewing work of the Ruach HaKodesh. He concludes his epistle with this exhortation. Rejoice! 
He includes in this section an exhortation to the Philippian community to strive for unity and not to allow grumbling and disputing to prevail. Right? That was in chapter 2, verse 14. Now, in his conclusion of this longer passage, he focuses upon the wonderful strength that comes from rejoicing in the Lord and sharing together in all of the goodness that he has accomplished for those who are his. It's when we see others going through difficult times and yet coming to the strength that God gives and being able to even rejoice and glorify him in spite of the, the problems that they're facing. That this gives all of us a sense of strength. That we can all face difficulties and do so for the glory of God. So let us all take these admonitions seriously so that as we fellowship in our respective communities of faith, we too will be blessed of God as we rejoice in His goodness and promises and that so great a salvation He has given to us in Yeshua made applicable through His abiding Spirit in us and with us. What a gift we have. So, verse 19, But I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Verses 19-24 form the next section of Paul's letter, which disclose his desire to send Timothy to them, as well as his hope that he too would be able to follow soon after. But what also characterizes this section is the testimony Paul gives regarding Timothy, and thereby sets him forward as an example of genuine service for the Lord by serving others, even when such service may require persevering through difficult situations. Isn't it interesting that Paul really applauds Timothy and his work for Paul as well as for others and his, his service to the Lord? And yet, did Timothy write anything that came into the Scriptures? No. What was Timothy? He was a servant. He was one who willfully and regularly and carefully and in a very good way served Paul and served others for Paul as Paul was unable to do it all. He truly was a disciple of the Apostle. This should tell us again, you know, there's this idea that, well, if I'm not a teacher, if I'm not a scholar, if I, you don't have, if I don't know the languages and so forth, I mean, what can I do? No, no, no. <laughs> Everyone in the body of the Messiah has been gifted to do something that pleases the Lord and that serves others. And you say, well, I'm not sure what that would be. Well, it can be encouraging. It can be praying for others. It can be uh, seeking to know if there's anything you can do for other people and their needs and so forth and so on. But it also means coming ready to praise the Lord when you meet together. And knowing that what you're doing is going to have an effect on others. And that's true for each one of us. So here we have a, a wonderful example of Timothy who is a servant to, to Paul, but has been faithful and is one that Paul can rely upon to send his message to others and to make sure that it comes to the others that are, it's intended for in good time and in good fashion.
he says, I hope in the Lord Yeshua. Paul, having expressed his rejoicing in the Lord, now makes known his desire to send Timothy to Philippi so as to be Paul's messenger, not only to describe his own situation and condition, but also so that he might learn how the Philippian community is faring in his absence. I mean, you can imagine Paul uh, was there, used of the Lord, to help actually put together the uh, Philippian community. Uh, he undoubtedly brought the gospel there, as others did, but he was one of the primary teachers and mentors for them. And now he's in prison and he's wondering, how are they doing? He's sending Timothy to find out. Once again, we find in Paul an excellent example for all who hold positions of leadership within a local congregation of believers. For though he doubtlessly was overburdened with his own situation and concerned for what the immediate future would hold for him, he nonetheless continues to fulfill his duties as an apostle of Yeshua, seeking to help and encourage those communities of believers he has been given the privilege to serve. In other words, once he helps a community form, and then he goes on to the next, he doesn't forget where he was and the people that uh, that he uh, ministered to. Yes. Uh, Hendrickson notes, well, another commentator, Paul, the joyful servant of Jesus Christ, the optimistic prisoner, <laughs> the humble cross-bearer, is also the thoughtful administrator. Even from his prison in Rome, he manages in a masterly fashion the spiritual terrain entrusted to his care, so that we marvel at his practical wisdom, gracious consideration of the needs and feelings of others, and delightful unselfishness. I mean, here he is probably in one of the most dire situations that he ever faced in his life, until the very end. And uh, what is his attention? The people that he was servant to. He wasn't putting himself forward as the person that needs all of the uh, accolades and so forth. No. He wasn't expecting everyone to point to him for all that he's done. Here he is in prison, concerning himself greatly for the welfare of those that he was privileged to teach and even to lead to faith in Yeshua. Paul also reminds us by stating, I hope, in the Lord Yeshua, that as believers in Yeshua, our entire life is to be lived out for him and in accordance with his will. We are to live always with this in mind. Our goal is to do what the Lord desires. Therefore, Believing that God is sovereign over all things, our desires and plans must therefore be submitted to this overarching reality, as the Lord wills, right? He says, I hope in the Lord Yeshua. We could understand that to mean, I hope by means that the Lord Yeshua will provide. Everything is in His hands, and my hope therefore is in Him. Come now, uh, James tells us, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, 
if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Well, at any rate, the whole point is this. When Paul says, I hope in the Lord Yeshua, he's saying, my life is in his hands, and what I hope to do will be orchestrated by him. I know that he will open the doors. I know that he will give me what I need, and I trust him for it. And that ought to constantly be our perspective as we seek to serve each other and to serve the Lord in our lives. He says, I intend in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly. Paul has stated that he hoped to send Timothy, which would seem to uh, emphasize that his own future was still uncertain as to the outcome of the trial he would face and whether this would result in his execution or his release. I, of course, personally don't know what it would be like to live every day wondering if it's your last, especially in a situation where you're being uh, accused of something you didn't do, and that thing that you're accused of is uh, uh, such that it warrants the death penalty. But here Paul simply tells us that he intends to send Timothy for what reason? (laughs) For the care of those people that he initially was with. This again tells us that when we hope in the Lord, it means we submit ourselves to the Lord's way and to the Lord's doing, to the Lord's leading and the doors that he opens and the means by which he enables us to do what he intends us to do. Surely Timothy was fulfilling an important role for Paul himself, undoubtedly providing him with food and other necessities during his incarceration. Yet he's sending Timothy to go minister to uh, the Philippian community. Well, he could trust Timothy, uh, as we'll see. I mean, they had uh, a very, very close and long working relationship. He says, I want to send Timothy so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Paul also was concerned for the Philippian community, for one could imagine that those who might be weak in their faith would question God's goodness for allowing Paul to suffer in prison for his faith. Why would God allow that? Might have been the question of many. Here he was with us, and we were so grateful for all that he's done for us, and now he's in prison, and we don't know if he'll live or die. Don't you think that some might have wavered in their faith? Ask these questions. Is God really helping us? Is God able? What, have we done something that has caused all of this trouble? You can imagine that there would be those who were young and immature in their faith might have wondered, and Paul, I'm sure, was concerned that message would go to them with Timothy and his faithfulness to help them understand that Paul is still rejoicing in the Lord and praising him and expecting the believers in Philippi to do the same. But Paul wanted to find out exactly how they were doing. Moreover, there may have been those who were fearful of the persecution that might come their way if they were open about their faith in Yeshua. Can you imagine? Oh, here's Paul in prison, uh, his life at stake. For what? 
or being a believer in Yeshua. Oh no, now what do I do? You could see how this would be a very difficult thing for new believers. And Paul was concerned. He wanted them to know that God was faithful. Faithful to him and would be faithful to them as well. As an apostle of Yeshua who had carried the message of the gospel to Philippi, Paul, as a good shepherd would do, was anxious to hear how the believing community was doing since he was no longer able to fulfill his role as a leader and a teacher in their midst. But we also note Paul's confidence that the report he will receive when Timothy returns will be a good report, for he expected to be encouraged. Here again, we see Paul's confidence is based upon the truth of God's sovereign work in saving sinners, just as he wrote at the beginning of this epistle, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, will complete it, until with the goal of standing in the day of Messiah Yeshua. Paul believed that God would always finish the work that he had begun. And the work that he had begun in the lives of the Philippian believers was a genuine work of faith, as Paul uh, was able to ascertain. So, he recognizes that he can trust the Lord for that, and yet the Lord uses means. And what was the means that Paul would uh, implement in order to give encouragement to the Philippian believers? It was to send Timothy. In fact, he is sure that when Timothy returns, the report he brings will be a source of encouragement. Once again, we see the confidence that Paul has in the promises of God, and may we likewise be strengthened in our faith to know that God's promises are sure and to live accordingly. So, Paul is urging us here by the Spirit of God to make rejoicing in the Lord a constant aspect of our lives of faith. How do we do that? We tell ourselves the truth. We continue to rehearse what God has done and is doing for us. We know that He has us in His care, and therefore no matter what comes, we can rejoice in Him. Timothy himself stands forth as an excellent example of one who was both a servant to Paul and others, as well as a trustworthy and dependable emissary for the apostle himself. We are reminded that in the opening verse of this epistle, Paul identifies himself together with Timothy as bond servants, plural, of Messiah Yeshua. It seems clear that Timothy was the co-worker closest to Paul's heart, since he was sent also to Thessalonica, from Athens, we read about that in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1-5, as well as to Corinth, from Ephesus, we read about that in the first epistle to Corinthians. He was sent as the trusted emissary of Paul. So here we see the fruit of true discipleship. For having been drawn to faith in Yeshua through the work of the Ruach, and taught and trained by Paul, Timothy fulfilled a vital role, not only in being the emissary of Paul, but also in strengthening and encouraging the communities to which Paul sent him. So, the very name of Timothy means to honor God. 
And I I don't know if Timothy was given that name at birth or whether that was a name that was given to him when he uh, came to faith. But nonetheless, either way, uh, he is living out what his name means. To honor God by serving Paul and doing as Paul has asked him to do to serve others in the believing community. We read this about Timothy in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 4.17 For this reason I have sent to you Timothy who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord and he will remind you of my ways which are in Messiah just as I teach everywhere in every church. And then again in 1 Corinthians 16.10 Now if Timothy comes see that he is with you without cause to be afraid for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. And so as we uh, conclude our time together tonight, we leave ourselves with Paul and with Timothy as two examples given to us in the inspired Word of God who, regardless of their physical uh, situation, are able and willing to rejoice in the Lord for all that God has given us. Isn't that something that we can do also? And I just encourage you and others who might listen to this later. Make rejoicing in the Lord something of a daily routine. Thank the Lord for all the good things that you have. Thank Him for giving you life for breath. Thank Him for drawing you to Himself. And thank Him for even the difficult things that may He may allow to come into your life or bring into your life because it's in the difficult things that we learn to trust Him even more. And so I hope this has been the primary emphasis of our time tonight. And uh, I know that it's been a challenge for me again as I work through this. And I hope it is for you, but I hope it is also a blessing to be reminded of what it means to walk in the footsteps of our Messiah. So thanks again for coming tonight, and I know that we only did two verses, but I think they were packed with plenty. And so I look forward to being with you all again next week as we continue our study in this wonderful epistle of Philippians.